Friends and neighbors, what is going on? This is Richie, and this is episode 23 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Whether you like it or not, summer is just about over, the days are getting shorter, and that's a huge bummer. But can seasons really have an impact on your mood and behavior? To find out, we spoke to Dr. Robert Levitin, who's a senior scientist at the Campbell Family Mental Health Institute at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health as well as the Cameron Wilson Chair in Depression Research and Professor at the University of Toronto Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Levitin works at the interface of the lab and the clinic to understand atypical subtypes of mood disorders like chronic depression, seasonal affective disorder, and eating disorders. In our discussion, he shares some fascinating insights on how these seemingly different disorders go together and sheds light on the impact of technology and modern life on mental health. Now, whether you've been listening since day one or only recently tuning in, we love all the input and support we can get. So let us know what you think about the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Talk Podcast. And if you shop on Amazon, please support the show by using the click-through link on our website, rawtalkpodcast.com. All right, that's enough out of me. Let's talk to Robert. So first question, Dr. Levinson, could you begin by talking a little bit about your personal background, where you grew up, and your early education? Sure, that, that's a great question. Uh, lots of fun to talk about that. I grew up in Montreal and come from a medical family. So uh, I'm one of five children, and three of my siblings and my father were uh, doctors. My father was a cardiologist in Montreal and uh, always loved research, but uh, you know, I think having five kids made it a little bit difficult uh, in his era to do that. But uh, he did do a lot of research as a fellow before he uh, had his family. And interestingly, uh, he passed away in 1987, unfortunately. And we only found out after he passed away that he had published uh, a first authored paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on flavonoids, uh, which at the time was called vitamin P. And you know, I, I found this out, in fact, when, when doing research for my professorial lecture in the Department of Psychiatry. And uh, as you might imagine, that was a very emotional to find that out and to go to the library and actually look up the paper. And, and then I did a medline search of flavonoids and cardiovascular disease and saw that it was a very, very hot area, you know, uh, literally 60 years later. He did this in 1949. So there was clearly an influence, uh, you know, in terms of both medicine, research, biology. This was the topic of our conversations at home. But, you know, when I did sort of biology in, in, in school, high school, etc., I enjoyed it, but it was really when I did my first psychology course that I realized behavior in the brain, you know, was really uh, very, very exciting. And, you know, being the youngest of the five, I think I had to do something a little bit different than everybody else. So the rest of the family tends to be in family medicine, internal medicine. So I, I went into psychiatry. And uh, another family tradition was at uh, university, an undergraduate, before medicine, in fact, three of us went into psychology, so it wasn't just myself. Uh, two of my older siblings had done psychology before medicine, and that was very helpful in terms of the research training, and we all work in the same lab in Montreal at McGill, uh, Dr. Norman White's lab, who was very interested in motivation, dopamine, and that's where my research inspiration and training really began, I would say, is, is both with that initial exposure to, to the brain and psychology and then uh, my undergraduate training uh, at McGill, which was very much designed to develop high-level behavioral research. 
So, you know, then I finished psychology and, and decided to do medicine as opposed to experimental psychology or clinical psychology. I would have to say my family background obviously influenced me in that regard, you know, knowing what hoops to jump through, so to speak. You know, I always thought that a full medical training also is helpful just in terms of understanding the whole physiology of the organism, uh, perhaps in a way um, that is unique. You know, starting medical school, I sort of wondered, am I going to do psychiatry? Am I going to do family medicine? And I tried to keep an open mind, but once I did my psych psychiatry rotations, you know, I was very clear that the experience I had had earlier in high school was, was, was telling me to go in the direction of behavioral and psychiatric uh, research. And I, I always sort of knew I wanted to be a researcher, so I didn't necessarily think I was going to open up an office somewhere. I always knew I was going to combine clinical work with research. So right from the beginning, it was always very much a, a clinical research strategy. Having done my, my residency in psychiatry, I tried to do a little bit of research during my clinical training. It was hard to do because of the time commitment, but I managed to do that. I managed to get a couple of papers out uh, as a junior resident. And then um, very importantly, and I'd say for the students out there, I did a three-year fellowship. So I was in a position personally where I could do that at that time. And that three years really helped me go back in time in a sense and, and fill in all the gaps in terms of my research knowledge and statistics and des experimental design and interpretation, et cetera. And, uh, you know, I would certainly say uh, doing a, a really solid fellowship is very, very important for people who want to have a serious academic career. You know, I think it's, especially nowadays, hard to succeed without that. And it was a great opportunity to do just research for a while with minimal clinical work. What was the topic of uh, your fellowship? So the, my fellowship was, was very much the precursor of what I'm doing now. So it was in eating disorders, but also mood disorders, really the overlap of mood regulation and eating behavior, if you will. So I was working with uh, Dr. Alan Kaplan at the time in the Toronto uh, General Hospital Eating Disorders Clinic. And the way my research career in psychiatry started was very, very interesting. You know, it was basically an afternoon in the clinic, and one of the first patients I saw in consultation, Dr. Kaplan was my supervisor, and she described bulimia nervosa. So she described these huge amounts of food intake in, in a very short period of time that clearly was dysregulated. And at the time, I knew nothing about eating disorders, so it was very puzzling, and I was sort of thinking, how could this be? How could somebody eat that much in such a short period of time? And it took me a while to figure that out. But at the same time, that very same patient went on to say, and by the way, you know, I also have this mood problem, and the mood problem was seasonal depressions. And uh, she went on to describe how she would get depressed in the winter. And when she did that, her binging got worse. So she would have the seasonal bulimia sort of picture where she'd be binging you know, much more so in the wintertime, and then in the spring and summer, a different set of problems would emerge. And I also you know, wasn't sure how I could understand that. Why would she have a seasonal pattern to this? And when I did some reading on seasonal affective disorder, I realized that overeating and weight gain is a big part of it. So it immediately you know, uh, triggered an interest in understanding the mechanisms that would lead to overeating, both in eating disorders and in seasonal affective disorder. So I did a fellowship with Dr. Kaplan, and we, we published several studies looking at seasonality in eating disorder patients and found some very, very interesting results. You know, my investment in that three-year fellowship paid off because I was able to get two first author publications in the top journal of, of the time, and it still really is uh, one of the top two or three psychiatric journals called the Archives of General Psychiatry, 
uh, it's now called JAMA Psychiatry. And what we demonstrated in our collaborative group was that serotonin activity and dysregulated serotonin activity seemed to be predicting overeating and mood problems both in patients with bulimia and in a separate group of, of, of patients with seasonal affective disorder. We found very, very similar findings in the two groups. Uh, at the time, we were using a neuroendocrine challenge, so we weren't looking at the brain directly. We were stimulating the serotonin system with uh, a serotonergic agonist called MCPP and, and found very blunted responses in both of the patient groups compared to controls. And you know, virtually since that time, everything I've done in one way or another still goes back to that first patient I saw and trying to understand the link between eating behavior and mood regulation and the whole cyclicity to it and the, the seasonal aspect to yeah. it as well. And you can see that if you do a Medline search, you'll see that theme <laughs> in different ways uh, emerge. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Craig. And for this word on the street, we want to get your thoughts on the interaction of technology and mental health. The first person we spoke to shared their compelling story on their experience with seasonal affective disorder, giving us a unique and insightful look into the life of someone experiencing it. Olenka Barron. I'm a finance and budget officer at U of T in the engineering faculty. Do you know what seasonal affective disorder is? A little bit. (laughs) I think it's when the weather turns more colder and grayer that that affects people's mental health and they may feel sadder and more upset. I had a baby and was on maternity leave so I went from working full-time for well over 10 years to being at home alone and it was the month of February that was very 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 gray and uh, it was cold and my husband had to work long hours and so I just felt like very alone trapped at home with now like an eight nine month old screaming and crying who's going through nap transitions and yeah it was just it was a difficult time so one thing that we talked about in the episode is you know being able to talk about things like seasonal affective disorder and sort of the stigma around it do you feel comfortable like sort of talking about it at the time is it much easier now like at the time, I don't think I really recognized it. It was my husband who recognized what was going on. And so it's easy now for me to talk about because now I, I know what was going on. But it, it definitely was like within hindsight that I could figure out that, yeah, I was feeling sad and, and up, upset. And he recognized it and was able to like get me some help. Hello there. My name is Jose. I'm a second year student here at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And uh, I study mathematics and philosophy here. Awesome. So, Jose, uh, do you know of or have you ever been told about mental health resources that are available here? Well, I'm aware of some some things they do in residence for people who live in residence. I know Don's received training on, on that sort of things. But outside of that, I, I, I really, I, I'm pretty sure there are resources, but I haven't seen them, like, well advertised around campus although like I'm pretty sure if I if I went online if I needed those resources I, I, I think I would be able to find them pretty easily so you're saying that you just don't see it uh, very prominently advertised around campus yeah that's right yeah I, I, I haven't really seen posters of that around um, and that sort of things maybe like like on the subway do you see like this this uh, mental helpline things but but no I haven't seen anything of that of that that for me I never heard of it so how far have we come as far as understanding the exact mechanisms the molecular mechanisms of how for example one's behavior might be linked to one's mood and how that works in a seasonal pattern 
that's, a, again, another great question that, that requires a significant amount of time to answer, but I'll give it a shot. You know, what I've come to learn is that there is, of course, no one answer to that, simply because mood regulation involves a huge number of brain areas and a huge number of genes and, and also, uh, of course, a tremendous number of environmental factors. So depression in one individual can be very different than depression in another. And so I think what we need to do and what I've tried to do is to really define sort of subgroups of patients, subtypes of, of depression that might be different. And the way I've done that historically is to look at the group of patients who have depression and overeating as being distinct from patients with more classic depression. Uh, in classic depression, for your audience, patients will tend to actually lose appetite and lose weight. So most depression in the community would involve the opposite pattern as you see in, in seasonal depression. You know, having said that, in terms of the fact that these are very heterogeneous disorders, there are certain subgroups of patients who seem to have a particular mechanism or, or set of mechanisms that might be driving the illness. So, uh, for example, uh, in patients with the combination of mood dysregulation and overeating, one interesting characteristic is that they tend to be very sensitive to the environment in multiple ways. So, if you look at seasonal affective disorder, it is driven by sensitivity to light. We now know that light is the key, not temperature, and it's very sensitive to latitude uh, and the time of year and the time that you give light therapy. It, it, it's best done early in the morning. That's seasonal affective disorder, but if you look at other patients who have depression and, and, and uh, overeating and obesity, they also are very sensitive to their environments. However, in many cases, it's the social environment that they are sensitive to. So there's something called atypical depression. It's also called Columbia Group Atypical Depression because it was uh, first described at Columbia University in New York. And one of the defining characteristics of that type of depression is something we call rejection sensitivity. And that just means individuals who, in response to certain minor facial expressions in people that they meet or slight things that happen, uh, they will have a very exaggerated emotional response to that. And you can actually see this if you expose them to facial, different facial stimuli and you look at MRI challenges. And so that's interesting that he here you have another group of patients, they have the same combination of depression and overeating, and they're also very, very sensitive to the environment. Uh, in this case, though, it's the social, not the, the physical environment. So that's what I'm doing now, is I'm, I'm very much orienting my research to try to understand the mechanisms that make individuals more sensitive to their environment. And, you know, in the brain, the, the main systems we tend to look at are the serotonin system and the dopamine system, which are both, of course, big systems, networks of nerve uh, tracts that have many different functions. But we have found some very, very interesting effects, for example, related to a dopamine gene. Uh, this is called the dopamine 4 receptor gene and other researchers have speculated that this gene has uh, what are known as plasticity genetic effects and plasticity genetic effects is not the same as brain plasticity. Uh, plasticity genes are thought to be genes that make individuals more sensitive to their environments and uh, some of the people that have, have, have uh, written about that include Jay Belsky, Boyce and Ellis have written about this. And the idea here is that these genes don't cause a disorder, but rather 
simply make you more in tune with your environment. And if the environment's good, you end up with a better than average outcome. If the environment is stressed, you end up with a, a worse than average outcome. And I find this a very appealing way to think about a lot of the genes that we look at in psychiatry because you see this clinically where patients, some patients seem to be very sensitive to their environments and it is for good and bad. So they often do very poorly once they leave treatment and they leave hospital and they go into a sort of hostile home environment. On the other hand, they do extremely well in hospitals. So they'll come into hospital and they'll get better within 24 to 48 hours and everyone looks at each other and wonders, why are these patients so much better so quickly? They were just depressed and suicidal. And a lot of it has to do with this tremendous sensitivity to the interpersonal context. It does create a problem though because you, know, you, you, you treat patients who have this environmental sensitivity, if you will, this social environmental sensitivity, and you might think that you've done a great job if they leave the hospital, you know, with a zero score on their depression rating scale. But if you check them a week later, if they're back in their abusive environment, of course, they're, they're now back in the severely depressed range. So the challenge with those sorts of patients is to, to think of it not in terms of just, you know, acute treatment of depression, but what's happening to these patients when they leave your care and they're actually going back to their environment. And as I said, you know, some patients have this tremendous sensitivity, but there is another group of patients with depression who don't have it at all, and their depression is not at all sensitive to in the environment and is really driven what, by what appears to be more of a pure biological illness and probably more of a pure genetic illness in the sense, in the classic sense, where, you know, there are genes, a set of genes that are just causing some dysregulation in, in for example, serotonin and, and then leading on to depression. So this is the sort of subtyping, you know, that I'm interested in to, to, to disentangle the different patients that we see. So as a psychiatrist, as a scientist, your work focuses on disorders that are stigmatized in society, depression, eating right. disorders. So how do you see your role as a scientist in helping to fight the stigma surrounding these disorders? Right. So, you know, certainly stigma is probably the, still the single greatest problem we have uh, in psychiatry. And, and you see this right through your training and you know, as you see psychiatric patients, uh, you know, even, even treated in the context of an emergency room, for example, uh, at least when I began, there was always a certain stigma associated with it. I would say that, you know, in, in the 20 or so years that I've practiced, things have improved tremendously, and, and you don't see that as much as, as, uh, as one used to. I think, you know, there's multiple roles, perhaps as a clinical researcher, by being able to demonstrate very specific causes and mechanisms of illnesses and helping people understand that it's not a choice, that it really is something that comes from either, uh, you know, uh, genetics or a combination of genetics and a difficult environment that one is not choosing, you know, one is just unlucky uh, to have. By, by demonstrating the mechanisms and these pathways and convincing, uh, you know, the general public about what the nature of psychiatric disorders are all about, uh, I think that's one way of, I think, de decreasing stigma. I hope so. You know, another one, of course, is just education, just helping people understand uh, how common psychiatric disorders are, how devastating they are. I don't think people understand the, the effect to individuals, to families, also to society. You know, there's tremendous healthcare costs associated with psychiatric disorders and time missed at work. Uh, depression is pretty well number one worldwide in terms of missed days of productivity around the world. And, you know, over time, unfortunately, most people come to learn that they know somebody, you know, who's had some form of, uh, 
of, of a psychiatric disorder. So usually life itself is, is the best teacher and, and um, you know, most people in their lifetime will come across psychiatric disorders and somebody there, either, uh, you know, either a friend, a family member, uh, a partner, etc., a co-worker. So that creates an opportunity, though, for teaching and, and support and learning, and so we have to al always be open to that as well. So different ways of coming at the same problem. Are you seeing any shifting trends as far as more or fewer patients coming in with a certain type of disorder, and would you attribute that to, as you say, the reduction of stigma, and would you also attribute that to, say, how we live our daily lives? We're constantly bombarded with, with stimuli, we're always busy, we're maybe a lot less mindful, there's more of a sedentary and, and high-stress lifestyle. Do you think any of that plays a role at all in what you're seeing? The, the whole notion of uh, societal stress and general society trends is, is a fascinating one because things have changed so rapidly you know, in the last 10 years, 5 or 10 years. And I personally think that the whole electronic age definitely has tremendous costs Maybe not for every personality. There's probably certain personalities that will thrive, you know, and love this sort of electronic age. But I think there's also a, a huge group of people who feel left out, right? And, and there's obviously a cohort effect. You know, obviously older generations are going to be a bit more intimidated by the electronic age. But it is a two-edged coin, though, because you could argue that people are more isolated and they're not interacting. And you see this in kids because they can just go on their gadget and connect to the internet that way so they don't have to go and hang out at a restaurant with their friends or whatever but on the other hand they are connected all the time <laughs> so you know it, it, so you could argue that they're more connected than um, 30 30 years ago 30 or 40 years ago but i do think that there's sort of an assumption that more is better with electronic stuff uh, and, and as electronic gadgets or, or capabilities are created I don't think there's a whole lot of thought about what, what, is, what are the ethics and the health issues and I imagine over the next 10 or 20 years one huge growth area in medical research is going to be understanding the effects of uh, gadgets both good and bad it's going to be a mixed bag probably and, and we need to understand that and, and maybe come back a little bit to a less, uh, less electronic age I personally don't remember the last time I was bored, and I don't know if that's a good thing. Well, I mean, my own, I have an opinion about that. I mean, I think with children, the one good thing about boredom is it, it does create uh, creativity. It triggers creativity. And that's the number one critique I would have of gadgets is that on the whole, I would say they decrease creativity because so much is easy, and it's, it's in a way it's good. And you could argue, well, but then you can become creative because you have all these things that you can be creative with. But again, it's only a certain personality style that, you know, maybe 5% of the population that will be more creative because they have gadgets. The other 95%, you know, used to read or they used to create games or they used to do things because they were bored and they'd have to call a friend and do something. And, and that's the aspect of it that I'm a bit concerned uh, about, not necessarily as a psychiatrist, but just as a member of society and as a parent. So we'll see though, I mean, we'll have to see how it all pans out, but uh, it definitely merits study. Yes. We don't know <laughs> what the outcome of all this is gonna be. The widespread use of technology in society is evident, but did the introduction of technology change how we live our daily lives? So the last thing we're talking about also in the episode is kind of the link between sort of technology and depression. So there's sort of this paradox where technology connects us, but it's also very isolated. So, you know, I'm kind of interested 
on your perspective on like do you think it goes one way or the other does it depend on context I think like when it comes to like certain like social media technology like I refer to it many times as like anti-social media like I don't find Instagram and Facebook always the most inclusive like you are putting a like a portion of yourself out there and maybe some sort of image and so that's not really like I find the most social because you're almost like competing with each other that way so I find that technology sometimes doesn't help and we're becoming more narcissistic by using like I use Instagram I use Facebook I try not to use too many more although at the same time there are people who are farther away and so you're actually able to like keep in touch with them and that part's actually kind of nice so it's, it's a bit hard uh, have you ever done a, a technology detox? I know that's something that's kind of been popping up recently where people unplug from all technology, not just social media. So I was wondering if you've ever done it or if you'd consider doing it and how that would feel. Um, I think for my work it would be hard because I have to use a computer every single day. and uh, So I wouldn't be able to do it fully. So I think what I did do was the two month part and it was actually really great because then I was able to focus on like my husband and my kid. Um, it was summertime so we were able to be outside more. but. I, with winter looming I'm thinking you know I might need to go back to it because it it's hard to get outside and so that's your way of like seeing the outside world is through these kinds of social media so um, as Kat was alluding to earlier uh, we are interested in kind of this paradox of technology so technology is something that connects us but it is also something that can be very isolating we're kind of interested in is what's your opinion on do you think it's one or the other or you know so what do you think on, on that kind of paradox on technology well I really I really don't think it's it's that big of a deal I mean you can more easily communicate with people for sure um, I think that you know, if, if you want to be social, if you want to go out there, there you can just, um, you know, you can just make plans with your friends. You can call them. It's very easy. You know, money is not a barrier for interaction. That's that's like I think one big plus. You know, you, you don't need like, you don't need to have a, a phone plan. You know, to like call your friends. You can just send them a message. Be like, hey, what are you doing? Let's, you know, with technology, I, I don't really feel like it's making us more, more. Um, secluded so as to say right but um, I don't really think that I don't think it has it has a that that big of an effect on people's mental health really uh, what about social media in particular do you think that uh, would your answer differ if it was social media and mental health specifically oh well yeah yeah if, if you <laughs> yeah I, I didn't think of that yeah surely Facebook yeah I mean yeah I get people people on Facebook just posting like I guess they're nice pictures and and you know you, you scroll through Facebook and you see everybody's having such a good time that that definitely has has an impact because I remember I, I read I, I read about like this in newspapers been like studies that say that people who stop using Facebook uh, report like a, a, a better mental health yeah that, that could have a negative impact on people I can Really good, especially during the winter, right? If you don't go out as much, uh, basically you're you. Sometimes you can get to like your only contact with the outside world be through Facebook, and yeah, I can imagine, you know, that 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 can can certainly take a toll on your on your mental health. Hi, I'm Jankar Harris, and I'm doing my doctorate at OISI on nonviolence and peace, and looking at how we can educate in facing some of the crises that people have today with violence, both in terms of family and society.
One thing we were wondering that came up in the episode was the intersection of technology and depression. Yes. Technology is very connecting, but it can also be isolating. Yes. What's your opinion on that? Do you think it's one or the other? Is there some context? Yeah, I mean, I think that a, a balanced human being is someone who connects to various social settings. And so if you are so connected to technology, my son is uh, an app developer, and I, I've watched him, you know, over many years. And I think seeing other young people, it worries me that that really disconnects them from people and in turn they don't flourish, if you will, inside with respect to interacting with other people. So I do, it does concern me, yes. And I do observe that in many, many young people, both who I teach at OISE and also others that I've seen. So when you say they don't flourish, are you referring to uh, you know the fact that they don't get the person-to-person connection? Uh, can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, the way, the way I see it is that people learn a lot in social settings. Mm-hmm. They, their behavior is formed to a high degree by the way they interact with others. So if those are removed, then it the learning is reduced and their behavior is modified, if you will. So I'm a big supporter of technology because I think it provides us with access and ways and approaches of dealing with so many different subjects, but I feel that it needs to be balanced with uh, social interaction. And so I always encourage that, even... Uh, we do a lot of online education work at OISI, and I really encourage always that those students go out and meet with other students, or we try in whatever way possible to create devices for social engagement and social interaction, because I think it's, it's just a necessary part of education. So this has been my observation, and... Uh, what I would like to contribute to this short survey that you're doing is to say that, you know, the human psyche is more than just a functioning brain and mental health. You know, it requires a holistic growth, requires a, a multiple levels of interaction, and one very important one is social interaction. And I, I really think that without it, it can lead to lack of flourishing of the human person. Through our interviews, we've heard many interesting perspectives on how technology can simultaneously connect us globally, but drive a rift between us locally. Personally, I think it's imperative that we're aware of how much we're using our technology and social media. It's important to take time for yourself and to get out of your system. But of course, this is just my perspective. The discussion doesn't end here. So I'm also curious, what are some of the challenges that remain in your research and how are you and your research group hoping to address them? You know, fundamentally, uh, psychiatric disorders are just very complex. Even schizophrenia, which we in some ways consider the purest of all the disorders, it's a very clearly a very familial disorder. It's clearly got a very strong genetic component. The phenotype is relatively straightforward, although even within schizophrenia, there are many subtypes. 
when you actually study it, though, when you actually study the genetics of schizophrenia and you do large, you know, GWAS studies of hundreds of thousands of cases, you still only can account for a very small amount of the variants. So here's a genetic disease. We know it's familial. We see the families and we do these huge genetic studies and we still can only account for very little of the variants. So, you know, clearly our understanding of genetics, uh, on the one hand, has advanced tremendously. I mean, I can't believe how, how far it's advanced, uh, you know, since Watson and Crick, uh, just, what, 70 years ago or so. But, you know, on a historical basis, we're at the very beginning still. We're just at the very, very first steps. You know, it's clear that genes are much more plastic, if you will, and uh, able to accomplish a lot more than we thought. It's not just a matter of having a DNA sequence leading to a certain outcome. Even in identical twins, you know, we only see a certain concordance for, for illnesses such as schizophrenia, you know, uh, maybe 40, 50 percent. So what's that other 50 percent all about? And of course, epigenetics, again, we're just at the very, very beginning. We're just trying to understand how to describe epigenetics. You know, I'm lucky enough to teach a course at IMS, in fact, on the molecular basis of psychopathology. And what I'm amazed at is that even when you look at, you know, simple organisms and you start looking at, at genetics, you know, immediately, you know, within five minutes of watching a lecture, you realize just how complicated it is and how it's going to take, you know, not just decades, but probably centuries to just sort out the genome and epigenome. And, and so, so that's just the sort of genetic and epigenetic side of things. Then you bring in the environment, you know, one thing. I always argue is that the same way we do GWAS studies, we should have uh, an environmental approach that parallels that. So we should always be throwing in a thousand environments, you know, when we do <laughs> either genetic studies or environmental studies. We shouldn't assume what environments are the most important for any individual or any illness. We really need to systematically categorize environments that we think are relevant to psychiatric disorders and, and medical disorders and be able to measure them properly in cohort studies and then you can imagine how complicated things get though when you start looking at environment gene interactions if you have the whole genome plus a thousand environments and then you know we haven't even talked about gene gene interactions gene environment interactions so you know, i would say the biggest problem we have is quite simply that we have a tremendous amount of new knowledge especially genetic knowledge but it's way beyond uh, our understanding of how to interpret it. And we, we don't step back enough, you know, maybe once a year at a conference, right? We'll, we'll talk about higher ideas. But my own philosophy is, is actually that I always joke that if I was in charge, I would tell everyone, no more grants. There's no grants for the next 10 years. You have to use data that already exists. You know, provide the data and just get everyone to be thinking and talking to each other. I, I actually think that would be a much more efficient way to do science than, than, than what we do now, which is just more and more data, you know, without um, the integration. And, and there's not enough theory. And my, my, when I started just, you know, over 20 years ago, it was very, everything was very theoretical and maybe too much so. Maybe there wasn't enough methodology to answer the, you know, the, the, the questions we were looking at. But I think it's gone way too far in the other direction there, where we don't have enough higher level sort of theoretical sort of ways of thinking about things. And just my own view of things. Is there any advice that you'd give to individuals entering psychiatry, maybe thinking about becoming clinician scientists, uh, incorporating some of the clinical aspects, seeing patients with the research? Absolutely. You know, I, I alluded to some of uh, what I would recommend in, in some of the things I've talked about. 
you know, first and foremost, you, you have to have a natural curiosity about what you're doing. So you have to be interested in understanding patients at a level that maybe is one step uh, you know, beyond what your basic training is, is going to tell you. And once you have that curiosity, you just have to keep your ears open and your eyes open and just wait for interesting cases. And believe me, uh, they're, they're always going to be there. And that's one, one of the things about psychiatry is that the heterogeneity and, and um, uh, the difference of every individual case uh, continues to be fascinating. I mean, I, I've never seen two cases that are exactly the same. And, you know, you just need to have that window of, uh, look, look for that window of opportunity and find a question that just fascinates you. And then it's really that fascination, that interest that drives it all. The reality is that at some point, you're going to have to do stuff that isn't that exciting, right? Writing grants that you don't necessarily want to have to be writing or, or you know, other sorts of tasks that are very administrative. The only thing that gets you through that is an intrinsic drive to really want to answer questions. So you really need to find that drive. And I would say that that is what gets people through and, and, and gets them past the hurdles that they need to, to keep uh, succeeding. And just like anything else in life, you'll go through periods where things, everything falls into place and it's great. Other times where maybe, you know, I mean, I've sat on papers for several years before I could finish them. <laughs> Other papers you write in a half an hour, you know, and, and uh, musicians say the same thing. Some of the best songs are written apparently in a minute, you know, and whereas, you know, if you're struggling, it's probably time to, to maybe go on to a different idea. So, so find something that fascinates you. An another critical thing you need to do once you've done that, though, is you have to find the right mentor. So you have to find somebody who can help you develop a research program. You know, uh, our Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto is absolutely world-class in that regard. I, I can't think of anywhere in the world where there's more diversity and expertise in so many different areas, both biological and psychological. And I've been lucky enough to, to have been part of that over a long period of time and still learn, you know, from all the different resources that are available. And that's a big advantage for, for uh, residents in our particular program. Uh, th there's, there's always ample supervision. The, the, the tricky thing is limiting your supervision. There's so many good people around that you have to ultimately, you know, pick one or two who are really going to help you develop your research program. So you need, you, need to, you, know, you need the mentorship. You can't just do it on your own. You need to be realistic about when you can do a lot of research and when you can't. So you know, in early residency, you can do a small project, but you can't do a big one for the most part. And then you know, in your last year of residency and then going into fellowship, that's when you need to be very serious about it. You need to go back, look at it very seriously, you know, probably do a master's or a PhD degree, learn proper methodology, statistics and devote you know, your full time to an academic pursuit. Uh, take advantage of that to get good publications out. So my best publications and most people's best publications are usually around fellowship or shortly thereafter because you have the time and the uh, enrichment from being in such a, a, a tremendous environment. So, so make sure you take full advantage of your early training and the time you've put in to get really the top publications you can. And that early set of publications then, of course, is the framework from which to get grants, and you just keep building from there. But never lose sight of the 
reason you started it, you know, go back to the basics, and I still do that sometimes. You know, what am I most interested in? What's the most fascinating thing? Uh, the, the biggest problem you have as time goes on is it's too stimulating. There's too many good, good and interesting things, and especially now, there's just so many areas of science and, and, and psychological research that are interesting that, you know, yeah, it, it's hard to limit it. So for someone who's interested in the work you're doing right now, where would they go to stay updated in your field and what you're doing? I'm always willing to talk about the, the stuff we talked about today, so people can email me directly, uh, robert.levitan at camh.ca, and, and go to the CAMH website, and that has information on all the different researchers at CAMH, uh, which is a world-class center for both basic and clinical research. Uh, lots going on. And there's lots of events in the Department of Psychiatry uh, at University of Toronto, and there is a website that will list the different events. So in any one week, there'll be world-class speakers at uh, the various hospitals. And, uh, you know, we have a research day, as do most other departments, and so people are certainly welcome to take advantage of all those resources as well. And sometimes just a good old Medline search. Uh, put in your topic and, you know, off to the races. Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this episode. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Levitin. It was, it Thank was a you. pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. And we'll see you next time. We'll update time. you. Yeah. Take care. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation at the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. And sometimes just a good old Medline search. Put in your topic and, you know, off to the races.